Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Today, John and I are going to be discussing one of the most popular topics in evangelical subculture, one of the most crazy uh, topics, one of the, certainly a cottage industry, a lot of money has been made discussing this particular topic, addressing, predicting, uh, panicking uh, about this particular topic, and so John and I thought it would be good to sit down and talk, yes, about the end times. Um, but in order to do that in a way that is somewhat clear and hopefully concise, we wanted to ground our discussion in a passage at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus himself discusses the end and his return. Uh, and because he discusses it, we know that even if people have gotten pretty crazy or confused or worried about uh, how to interpret certain things, we know it's not something to be dismissed. We know it's something that Christians are meant to be aware of. And so what we were going to talk about today is this passage in particular in Luke 21 from verse uh, about 5 to 35, 36. And what we want to kind of get out of this is if we're not meant to get crazy over it, if we're not meant to dismiss it, what are the essential things that Jesus wants sort of the average Christian to know about the end times? What are the essential things that Jesus wants us to be prepared for regarding this? Um, it is one of his uh, clear teachings, so it's not something we want to ignore, but we also don't want to lose our minds in speculation. So hopefully this will be a, a fruitful conversation for those of you listening. I'm going to start by reading Luke chapter 21, verse 5 to 36. So Jesus has been in the temple teaching, correcting uh, interpretations of Scripture, um, pointing out the way in which uh, religious leaders in the temple system have uh, not been treating the vulnerable and in and around the temple well, um, just showing a lot of the holes and the errors and the things that need sort of taught more clearly or corrected. Um, so he's been doing that, and this is that moment when it says in verse 5 of chapter 21, some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? He replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and saying, the time has come, but don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and there will be famines and plagues in many lands. And there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out, and those out in the country should not return to the city. For those will be days of God's vengeance, and the prophetic words of the scripture will be fulfilled. 
how terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. For there will be disaster in the land and great anger against this people. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. And then there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. Then he gave this illustration. Notice the fig tree, or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness, by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Okay, so there's quite a lot there, and I am so happy that Pastor John is going to help us understand everything here, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and one of the best uh, things about having Pastor John here is not only his um, careful work with the scriptures and the original languages, which is harder and harder to find um, these days, even among pastors, and I really appreciate um, his influence and sort of his role model kind of role there for me to kind of keep me working on my Greek. Um, so I'm glad John's here to talk about the language underneath the language, but I'm also glad because John's history of ministry has seen him in and around this topic in ways maybe even more common than other people or other pastors have been. Um, there is a time I know in John's history when he was uh, asked to be on the radio uh, to explain uh, certain things about the end times, but at that time, from what I understand, um, it was because he was an expert on the pre-trib rapture and coming out of the, the Calvary Chapel movement and the uh, dispensationalism of that movement. And so I think also John brings a really interesting context of, of years of familiarity and some changing opinions about the end times. So John, with all of that, probably way too much uh, to foist upon you, um, could you begin to open up maybe your history with the end times in evangelical culture and Christian culture or just as a pastor? Yeah, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the 1970s, when I first came to the Lord, uh, I, I got a good grounding in the scriptures and began studying the classical languages. And part of my growing up in the Lord was being introduced to the pre-trib rapture ideas of interpretation of culture around me and the scripture. And I tried to absorb and learn as, as much as I could about that. It was kind of like piecing a puzzle together. Mm. You know, you'd, you'd hear all of the uh, uh, teachings and all of the excitement about contemporary events and putting them in different places. And, uh, and so, you know, I did uh, give a considerable effort into trying to get that uh, mind map going. And uh, I found after a few years that uh, the critical thinking part of it for me was noticeably absent. I wasn't questioning little changes. You know, one puzzle piece doesn't fit one place, so you take and put it in another place. <laughs> you know, that I, it just wasn't sustaining that compulsion for me. And then I began to uh, question it and look into it. Uh, when I went to Cal State Long Beach, we had quite a fraternity of, of uh, believers who were there for 
to gain tools from a secular school that they could use in ministry. It kind of a different approach in that day. And we had an all-millennialist, a, uh, a post-millennialist, a preterist. So, you know, we had the arguments. I mean, we had the heated arguments. Yeah. Uh, we would leave the cafeteria as a nuclear fallout zone at times, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, the people around just wondering what those people what were, were talking arguing about. about. <laughs> you know, how could they be so passionate? Yeah. And, and I had the luxury of being a part of a Calvary Chapel that wasn't, that wasn't exactly the heart of Calvary Chapel. Uh, Capitol Beach Calvary was kind of the black sheep organization mm. where, because uh, Chuck Smith Jr. was the pastor, you were free to, to ask questions mm. like, is this really true? Is mm. that really true? <clears throat> there was that security there that the family relations could never be broken. So... Mm. Uh, so you could you could question yourself and give some critical thinking, which I began to take advantage of and began to question, uh, you know, in my studies whether uh, pre-trib rapture or you know dispensationalism as a whole was something that I really believed in, and so I found as I went went along, I did not believe in it after a while, mm. uh, after a few years, uh, I didn't believe it was scriptural. I should say, is there a way to concisely ex- define dispensationalism for people who aren't sure about that or maybe have heard it but aren't really clear what dispensationalism is? Is that, is that too big to, <laughs> yeah, it's to a, wrangle? Th- well, I, I think it's, it's too big, but basically, uh, you know, the periods of time in human history are broken into different dispensations, and there are different rules for each dispensation. God treats different periods of history in different ways, different yes. sets of rules or expectations. Yeah, and each period of history has a has warnings and a judgment at the end of it to transfer into the next uh, dispensation. They don't overlap. They, they don't they, overlap. Okay. And one of the boundaries in the current dispensation is that the... Uh, the church, which is apostate, will be judged uh, as as a part of not taking the warnings adequately of Scripture. So there's a lot going on there that's kind of terrifying, actually. <laughs> and under, trying to understand historically where the things came from so that I didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, as mm-hmm. we used to say. I think the goal is always to be able to take the Bible literally and and uh, and understand it uh, as it is, but still have a view toward the end times. I think that's the goal. Uh, you know, if you believe a system of thought and you have to start throwing out scriptures, right. your, your belief system probably needs to be questioned as to whether you're uh, legitimately looking at something that, that God wrote. You know? right. and, and the bottom line of disassembling it were things like understanding of the book of Revelation, going through it and and seeing that there there really wasn't a place for the pre-trib rapture there, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So the historical part of it became very interesting in me to, to look at the uh, Plymouth Brethren and to go back into the histories of, um, of, of European Christianity and the 19th century uh, frustrations that, that, you know, they had in England and, and eventually was imported here. And particularly interesting is the development of, um, of dispensationalism in the United States uh, during that 19th century period. Uh, I've been reading a book recently by Timothy Gloge, and the book is entitled Guaranteed Pure, hmm. uh, the Moody Bible Institute, Business, and Making of Modern Evangelicalism. And he cites this um, strange coalition between businessmen, politicians, and ministers hmm. that developed during the last part of the 19th century. And it was a, an, um, a powerful coalition which, which evolved into conservative evangelicalism. And it's very insightful, it's very challenging to read it because uh, what Glode shows is that the origins of, of um, uh, conservative evangelicalism were very sketchy and kind of all over the place, mm. uh, kind of outside of the um, traditional cr- historical Christian institutions, uh, businessmen favoring uh, ministers who had the ear of politicians and working together and promoting Mm. this monolithic uh, conservative evangelicalism, 
which, uh, which they claim, uh, you know, is the hand of the Lord, the work of the Lord. But you can see how many of these views were accommodated by the politics of the day and the businesses of the day. And a lot of the remnants of it are still around. I recommend that book highly. I think it's right up there with some of Marsden's works uh, as far as the history of fundamentalism. And Is this a newer book? Um, it's 2015. Okay, yeah. And uh, very, uh, very challenging to read. Yeah. Uh, Gloge is not a uh, is not from within the inner contemporary circle. This right. is this is not a revisionist history. He's mm. uh, he's a PhD in history from Notre Dame, so he's you know he's he's got a different perspective on things. Mm-hmm. But um, I found that that this kind of reflects something that I suspected for a very long time is that you know this is kind of like make it up as you go along, mm-hmm. and it was very powerful. Mm. And it doesn't match the history of interpretation or understanding of Christianity. It has that entrepreneurial spirit. It has that kind of, like you say, well, even in the way that um, that this sort of end times uh, thing in evangelical culture or even just in contemporary Christian culture generally is such a cottage industry and is has such power over even politics, obviously, to this day and views of Israel and things like that. But this is kind of trying to gather uh, how those connections formed early on at the end of the 19th century. Yeah, and, and let me just say that yeah. that uh, I don't despise the um, uh, kind of haphazard way in which I learned uh, end times uh, issues. Uh, they, they give you a framework of, of trying to put things together. I mean, sometimes it's, it's useful to have tried to build the puzzle mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. put it together to where you can really remember things and see things. Uh, and it kind of funnels out into, I, I want a better understanding. I, I don't want to just take this, this complicated uh, uh, thing. I don't want to be deceived by trying to get my newspaper and, and match that to, to, to Scripture every day. Mm-hmm. I want to really, I want something solid. Uh, so, but sometimes you have to form a base that's not so solid to get to that solid part, and that's what I think happened to me personally. As yeah. I benefited greatly from, uh, you know, understanding the pre-trib rapture position, uh, and it helped me expand my understanding later to to sift out what I didn't want to have my uh, my my uh, end times understanding based on, and and that kind of brings us around to to the text a little bit, uh, this incredibly great text that you read. Um, In in today's time, I think we understand more than any other time in my lifetime the importance of narrative, personal narrative, and political narrative, and Mm. cultural narrative. Uh, There is a great uh, sweeping of narratives everywhere. There, There could be the great delusion at play now and working its way into the common uh, culture. There could be uh, understandings that, that just totally blind people from, from doing critical thinking. Another book I've, I've been reading is by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm. This is an older book, but he is a uh, behavioral economic, uh, economics expert, Nobel Prize winner, also has done some happiness studies. Mm. But he, he has these uh, ways of thinking, uh, system one and system two, he calls them. System one is fast, intuitive, emotional thinking. Hmm. Uh, you're, you're persuaded by your, your intuitive impressions and thoughts at first, and you think that those are your deep thoughts. You think that you're, this is conviction. You really believe this, but what's happening is your, your intuitions are matching uh, associations that you've got around you. And then he has a separate type of thinking, system two, he calls it, which are slower, deliberative, logical ways of thinking. Hmm. But he does a lot of um, uh, explanation about how uh, every person understands things first through that system one thinking. There's this in- intuition that hits you. And, and so it hits you in a way that matches what you're trying to think through and you become uh, what we call in, in, uh, in Christian circles, we call it conviction. Mm. We're convinced of something, but we think it's the Holy Spirit, but 
it's not necessarily the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's just an alignment of things we've been taught and believed before. And, and so you're saying, and you're saying it's uh, it's unavoidable. It's it, the first wave of of how we maybe interact with something or try to make connections between things. Almost, yeah, almost. It, you can suspend, uh, you can suspend the unavoidableness of it. <laughs> you can say, hey, look, I I know this looks really strong and persuasive, but I want to look deeper into this. Right, I want to, okay. I want conviction of soul and spirit that comes from the Lord, not from these. Uh, not from what I've always learned, what I believe is true. You know, we're we're like so party line now. Yeah. And that doesn't stop at the church door. I mean, the party lines within the Christian subculture are are just as as rabid or whatever the word is. They're just as strong to us. Yeah. So the beauty of this text is that here Jesus is answering his disciples in probably uh, you know 30 A.D. And they're asking him uh, about the temple system, the magnificent temple that's right before them. Right. And he is giving them a ground for understanding how the temple system will come down and how the end of time will end. <laughs> and he's giving them this base of, of uh, instruction that gives them a framework. Right, okay. Okay, so... So what I would what I would contend part of the beauty of this text is in the framework it gives the person. Okay, it gives you a framework that's red letter, uh, meaning Jesus' words, mm -hmm. that's not contaminated by uh, by other forms of thinking. In the in the book I mentioned by Timothy Gloge, the, the title "Guaranteed Pure" comes from this phenomenon in the 19th century, where people would would go to their hardware store and they'd buy oats in bulk. And in order to get oats in bulk, you'd have to dip this cup into this bulk container, mm -hmm. and then you'd weigh it out, pay for it, and take it home and have your oatmeal or whatever. The original Costco. And, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so people began to think, this is gross. You know, <laughs> we got people in there Everyone's dipping their cup are... in and clean their cups the last time they came. Right. So, so Guaranteed Pure was a business approach to bringing oats home. You would get this tube of oats that wasn't in bulk. It really was, but they didn't tell people that. Right, right. And it was sealed tube. It was guaranteed to be pure. It wasn't contaminated with other people's cups or whatever. <laughs> guaranteed pure. So, so the promise of the uh, end of the 19th century evangelicalism that was developing is, we're going to give you the pure. You're going to have a pure faith. Mm. It's not going to be contaminated with contaminants of, of German theology, of, of uh, views of, of evolution, of right. modern sciences. You're going to get the pure thing. But it wasn't pure. It was mixed with <laughs> people's views. It was, uh, some of it was made up as they went. And, and so it kind of exposed that. But this, chapter 21 of Luke, this is pure. This is Jesus' teaching, and it gives uh, every person, starting with his disciples in 30 AD, listening there, it gives them a framework to build upon uh, other uh, understandings of, of moving through space and time as a culture of mm -hmm. history, but this is solid. Mm -hmm. And if you get the general nature of this in a, in a solid way, you really do have a basis for, for being able to live through any time that occurred from the time of Jesus to the time of now. Mm. And, and so that's the beauty of this passage. It's, it's just, uh, it's pure. Mm. Un and unbelievably concise. It starts with the disciples who are standing right around him, begins in that, that original context, and yet is, is applicable all the way up till the return of Christ, which he mentions very explicitly. Maybe you could start us there in that first context, that Roman context, that uh, Jerusalem 30 AD context. The disciples are enamored of the beauty of the gold plating on the sides of the temple. We know Josephus talked about how from hundreds of miles away when the sun was setting, it would light up the gold of the temple, and you could see the temple in Jerusalem from just ages away, and it would be like the this almost 
beacon of the glory of God and just that association, that tight association of Jerusalem and temple and Judaism and all these things just being uh, almost overwhelming to, to their senses and distracting to his disciples. Could you start us in that place where they are and build out that maybe original context and some yeah. of the things we should pay attention to there? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to because it's such a beautifully set passage. You see, Jesus has come into uh, the, the temple. This is after the triumphal entry. And he's come in teaching, and he's been successful at teaching. He has opposition. He has opponents. The, the guard, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Jerusalem, they're not interested in what Jesus is teaching. Uh, but he's able to teach anyway. And the people are listening every day. They're gathering, and he's teaching. And he's demonstrated uh, to them that he's able to teach God's Word in a way that transcends what they were teaching. Hmm. Uh, they could not stop him from teaching. And people were getting it, they, and, and it was making the leaders mad. They were madder and madder because they knew he was teaching and exposing their own deficiencies. And so Jesus has, has spent uh, chapter 20 in particular uh, teaching the deficiencies of, of the Jerusalem leadership. They, they could not teach properly. They were not properly applying God's word to anything they were doing. It was an institution that had denied basically the word of God. So he's, he's told them basically that their leaders are, are after their own interests, they're corrupt, they're not really uh, teaching God's Word, they don't understand God's Word, they don't know who the Messiah is, they don't know the importance of the Messiah. And uh, they feel that, that Jerusalem and Israel and its nation-state history is God's chief concern, when God's chief concern was the Messiah mm. and His own Son. And so he's exposed this in a teaching way, and he, and he told the, uh, the parable in chapter 20 about the evil farmers, uh, about the landowner who, who bought a piece of land, which is the vineyard of Israel, the people of God, and then leased it to others to tend. That would be the leaders in Jerusalem, and how when the vineyard owner sent his son, they rejected the son and killed him. And so, you know, Jesus then told them that, that the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone who falls on it. Verse 18, it's really in cryptic statement. I mean, you, you, how do you lay a cornerstone, but others are crushed under the cornerstone? Mm. How does that happen? And we, we fly over that prophecy so fast. This is going to explain that prophecy. Mm. This is how you can be crushed. Uh, under, uh, under the wall and weight of this institution. Um, so, you know, just to continue the thought here, Jesus has really put a wedge in between the teaching of those who are responsible leaders of Jerusalem and his own teaching. His own teaching is, is, is uh, pure, as we would say, in our context. Uh, but the last thing he taught is how, uh, how unfair the practices of the leaders were, that they, would, uh, that, that they would go in their robes and people would give them gifts and honors and, and acknowledge them, but a widow would come and give everything she had to, to, to give to the poor. She was poor. And, and how basically corrupt the whole system had become when the, when the poor are giving everything they have and the leaders are giving nothing in abundance, nothing of surplus. So right there, he's, he's really established a line between the teaching and the leadership in Jerusalem. And there's one thing left to do. It's the institution of the temple. Mm. He's, he's got to, in their mind, provide a, a, a turning away from the past, a turning away uh, from what was the strength in the past of the old covenant. And that's not easy to do. I mean, they're like you say, they're standing in the shadow of this giant temple, and perhaps they're thinking, oh man, Jesus, is the crowd loves him, he's teaching clear, we're his disciples, uh, maybe we're going to take over this place one right, day, you know, right. maybe this temple is ours, you right. know? Right, so even if they are seeing the deficiencies of the present leadership, 
there's still the possibility that they would just say, oh, it just needs new leadership. Yeah, just and needs it, a better... Is Jesus going to say, and okay, Jesus I'm the, the Messiah, <laughs> so this is my house, right. you know? This is the unveiling, maybe, so, for them. So he's yeah. got to separate, and this is the task. This is the great task. Mm. He's like one week away from dying for the sins of the world. He hasn't suffered anything negative yet. And in their eyes, they're seeing him as, he's the Messiah. He's powerful. He teaches. And yet... Uh, and, and yet they are going to be cast into the sudden reality and awareness of turmoil that he's going to die. So, so they're like passing ships in the night. Mm. He's, he's going out of this world, and they're coming into the reality of this world of rejection. Mm. And, uh, and it's in a moment's time, it, it just adds to the incredible nature of this. And he catches them. Looking at, uh, looking and admiring the majestic stonework. There's a, you know, there's a, there's an impression here that's that's portrayed. Memorial decorations on the walls, and that's when he stops them. The time is coming when these things will be completely demolished, and no stone will be left on top of another. So there you have the fulfillment of the prophecy that the stones will crush. Uh, Uh, those that are... Yeah, yeah, from chapter 20. So he is going to tell them how this is going to happen and and explain that to them and turn their hearts away from the institution. And that was not easy because Jerusalem was thought to be bound up and associated with God, with the Old Covenant. It was the city of God. God was defending Jerusalem. And the temple was the building or the institution of God in the city of God. It's all just completely bound together. All bound together, yeah. yeah. And, and so the task of this is to give them a framework to where they can start understanding the events of history, uh, what's going to happen in the next week, next few days. Give them a framework that they can build upon in such a way that they can live their lives without being paralyzed or disrupted by the fear the panic and the chaos, which is going to follow and which is going to ensue historically. So, uh, so he, he tells them that, uh, or uh, excuse me, they ask uh, him that, uh, that they would like to know when it will happen and what sign uh, that he will show that these things are about to take place. So the sign is not a, a challenge. It's not like this evil generation seeks a sign. This is like, give us a signal of when it's about to happen. Right. So it's, it's, it looks like two questions, but it's really one uh, in some ways. One with two parts. It's, they're both when questions. The sign will, will, will make clear when this yes, is happening. Right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, this, and in verse 7, teacher, um, I think you, uh, there's a textual note there that, that this also implies or, or suggests that the disciples are not the only people around Jesus at this time, that the, there are other people listening in. Yes. This is a, almost a general address. Yeah. Some, some teachings of Jesus are only reference a group of disciples seem to be off to the side. It's just for them. Sometimes he says as much. This is not sort of just for them. Potentially this is in the hearing of other people. Yeah, I believe that's important um, not to get... Uh, Technical, too technical on your podcast. But, but, <laughs> Pronoun hey, me, John. We can't do that Pronoun here. Me. We, we got to be unplugged here, right, mm-hmm. Dave? Mm-hmm. So meaning uh, always carries uh, over it the um, the domain. You have to have a domain of meaning. Uh, something can never mean in in scripture that it never meant. Mm. So you you can't have something mean something. Uh, and it never meant that, but it means that now. <laughs> so, so you would never want to say an interpretation was a good one if you said, "Well, the original people would never have understood it that way." But now we know, yes, that it clearly he really meant it for us in the 21st century to see it this way, even though it's impossible for them to have made that interpretation. Yeah. So, so teaching that the idea that it was public is extremely important as far as the the end hermeneutic goes. Of, mm. Who, who's under the domain of this teaching? Are, and, and ultimately, are you and I under this? I mean, we could sneak in under the discipleship and the private conversation uh, umbrella. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this perhaps uh, is an indication that, that the general public, or, or at least those of, of the Old Covenant, those who are visiting the temple, this is a crowd uh, listening, and some of the disciples are asking the question. This is the press conference, right? And and the answer is all inclusive to everyone. 
And in part, the ambiguity just of, of they asked in verse 7, right? Teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? We don't know who the they is. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it could be the disciples. It could be people who are just crowding around listening. Yeah, and they heard him tell his disciples, you know, don't be so impressed with this temple because it's coming down. And they're like, it could even have been a yeah, it could even have been an an enemy. Right, right. Um, So, but but these are uh, these are just opening the door a little bit to the possibility that this is for not just his disciples, but all of his followers, even the interested or less interested Mm -hmm. ones. Uh, and I like that uh, thought because what Jesus is going to give us here is a warning not to cling to this temple hmm. like you would cling to God, because it's coming down. And that's what, uh, that's what would be the reality uh, faster than you could imagine. So in verse 8, then, when he says, so as a reply, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah saying the time has come, but don't believe them. Um, so so he's, he's saying, I mean, anyone who thinks they know when, when, the when that they ask, sort of when will this happen, anybody who isn't him, anybody who isn't what, God the Father that says the time has come, here it is, this is happening, um, cannot be trusted? Wow, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's a, a salient question because it's a salient implication. So don't let anyone mislead you. Okay, so we would say someone comes along and says, I'm the Messiah. Uh, you know, obviously a false Messiah. You won't be led by that. But, but someone who misappropriates uh, the, the end times who says the time has come, that person you're not to let mislead you. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's kind of a frightening Uh-oh. thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, believe it's, I believe it's pointed um, I've, you know, as, as you already explored, uh, my background of uh, starting out pre-trib uh, rapture dispensationalist changed my behavior in life. What do you uh, mean? Well, uh, I got, I could see things according to uh, the end times having been there in the 70s. Uh, I could see things that, that made me just so aware of the imminence mm. of God's second coming. And so I could uh, basically ignore certain things. Uh, life insurance was an issue for me. I was offended that someone would <laughs> knock on my door yeah. and, and try to sell me life insurance when the world was coming to an end, and it was going to be in the next year or two. Right. So it's like, how dare you try to sell me? I'm trusting in the Lord. And I would get you know, pretty uh, zealous without yeah. knowledge about it. Uh, these days, I'd love to have a really low, lower rate on life insurance, you know, because... Because I'm ready to hang out for a while if this isn't the end of time. So this idea that, that pinpointing the time and the hour, it affects your life and not for, always for the positive. Now, you know, people can make a case and they do say, well, this just makes you more ready for God to come. But it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I, I would contend that it doesn't. And that's perhaps another conversation altogether. But uh, you Would know, you just say it's because it, it, it distracts or overemphasizes a certain aspect or it maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe not in your case, but excuses a certain kind of sort of casualness about the world or a connection to the world because, because we're expecting the world to disappear or us to be taken out of it? Or Well, to be honest with you, Dave, I think what it does for me personally is it lets me bypass the work that God wants to do in my life now, uh, it, it bypasses the need to change. Uh, I don't need to repent of some some uh, deep things in my heart if, you know, we're out of here in a year or two. Mm. Uh, I don't need to work on some issues that I'd rather not work on. I'd rather not deal with some of the fallenness in my heart uh, because that usually requires some, some facing of, of reality and some pain, some repentance. Uh, there's a long road. And that would be a kind of that, that second kind of thinking that uh, you were talking about coming out of that book, that deeper, yes. kind of deeper work, a little more contemplative, a little more step-by-step, maybe not as uh, emotional, not as exciting feeling, maybe doesn't have all the charge to it, but is sort of that ordinary, mundane, the path of just genuine change as a disciple. Yeah, Just yeah. kind of takes the, the focus off of that or makes that feel just intolerable or yeah, too like slow. <laughs> so, more, more like a me and Jesus right. uh, 
relationship, you mm-hmm. know? What, what does he want of me, and what do I need from him? Independent of how close to the end of time we are, mm-hmm. uh, irrespective of the fact that he's going to change me in the twinkling of an eye, probably at a second coming, uh, irrespective of those things, uh, I need to be uh, working with him on the project of my own salvation as he brings it. And it, it makes me not want to do the work if I'm thinking, I can shortcut this. Right, and we're not just uh, assuming or making those connections. Jesus is, is warning his disciples, do not be misled. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's ultimately a community purpose. This isn't so individual. Right. Uh, starting point, me and Jesus. But the end is, I'm going to be effective in communicating the Word of God and teaching and, and uh, helping others understand the truth of God uh, if I'm working on it myself and and uh, and I am uh, less than panicked while the world falls down around me. Mm. And he says, because he says right after, he says, that, don't be misled, uh, false messiahs, but anyone who says the time has come, don't believe them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. And And I mean... Growing up evangelical or growing up in that subculture, especially, I mean, I remember just feeling that panic and around me, just even in certain churches, or I remember feeling it even um, just in like circles of friends and just this idea, the thief in the night, like those videos. I remember seeing like little parts of certain videos or rapture kind of stories. And especially maybe just as a young person, but maybe anybody, um, like, it was like, sure, kind of panic. It was always said, like, don't panic, you know, like, this isn't going to happen to us. Or, But, it, like, seeing certain things or having that, that sense, even the popularity when I was a little bit older of, like, the Left Behind series and just, like, these, like, depictions of chaos yeah. and, like, the world, like, planes dropping out of the sky and... Um, it was hard to figure out how you wouldn't panic with that kind of attention, at least that kind of focus on, you know, 27 books about, <laughs> about, the, about the end of the world. And, um, but Jesus is saying, like, don't panic. Don't panic when you start to hear about tumult and chaos and wars, insurrections, all these kinds of things, that they must take place first, but, but that we're, as his followers, we're not supposed to give in to that kind of panic or fall into that. Yeah, well, well, fear, mm. fear disables us. Fear disables everybody. So if everybody's panicking, who's going to be there as a witness? Who's going to be there mm. saying, uh, you, you have something more to fear than, than the sky falling. Right. You, you have something more to fear, and that's standing before the judgment of God without Christ. That's the fearful thing. And, and who's going to be there to witness and say that if everybody panics? And, and I think that's part of what Jesus is doing, giving his faithful followers a framework to not panic. You ask the question, how do you not panic? Well, the only way you don't panic is by realizing that Jesus said, don't panic. Right. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I don't need to panic. Yeah, right, you know? right. This is real bad, but right. I don't need to panic. Right. This isn't, this isn't unknown. This is something that, he, that was part of that framework, part of something he laid down, so we can get out ahead of it a little bit. Um, now, in, in that verse, well, let's say be, that verse 9, wars and insurrections, things that are going to start to happen, uh, will take place. It says, yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. What, what does that mean? What does that okay, so, imply? So again, remember, uh, we, we've introduced the domain of, of, um, of, of believers down through time, of, of uh, covenant inquisitors. We've introduced the domain of, of their being uh, uh, talked to also. But the primary uh, learners in this situation are those who are, who are looking at a temple institution thinking it's bound up with God, and Jesus saying terrible things are going to happen, and then saying the end won't follow immediately. Mm. So what he's doing is he's setting the framework for the destruction of the temple mm. with the continuation of time. So, so the end of the temple doesn't mean that God returns again. It doesn't mean that time is over and the new uh, kingdom has, is coming. So, so he's opening up the gap here of time between the end of the temple and the end of time, and it's a large gap. Mm. And, and so... Um, and you're saying that was almost unthinkable for them to think that God's presence and activity and everything could somehow go on after the temple is destroyed. That, yeah. That, 
that is their cataclysm. They can't, yeah. they can't separate that from the end of all things. They're, they're living in a covenant land where this temple is God. Right. I mean, it represents the work of God. And to say this is going to be destroyed, they live in fear of the Roman invasion. They live in fear of what if the Romans let up their hand and don't accommodate us anymore and allow us to have our temple? Uh, what if they're called to fight and die for God in this temple? I mean, those are the fears that go through their mind daily. Uh, and, and the idea that the, the temple will be destroyed, God will let it be destroyed, he's not bound up with this temple any longer, and it does not speak for him, mm. uh, and, and that they, they're to go on, that takes an, a, a, a clarity of thinking. That's going to take a real determination uh, to go forward and, and, and even to get out of there. Well, and like you said, even for his closest disciples, whatever about the crowds and the, the general kind of curiosity, but for the closest disciples, this is that wedge that says, my goal is not to become the new leadership of the temple and just sort of clarify, get better leaders in this system. But in fact, this system is, is done, that there is a there's a judgment that's going to be on the system itself. There's going to be a separation in God's work where it's not going to be propagated through the temple system, the sacrificial system, and all the things they associate with that and with Judaism in that way. Yes. And so what's been established now at this point is terrible, horrible things are going to happen to this temple. People are going to die. It's going to be destroyed. But the end hasn't come yet. Mm. So get used to it, disciples. You're going to, li you're going to live beyond this temple. And, and in 30 AD, mm. how fast that would happen uh, within 40 years, uh, they could not imagine in that moment, and Jesus is describing to them what their reality is going to be for a lot of them. So, and, and so you're saying 40 years later, we're talking about 70 AD, 70 AD. Rome ends up surrounding Jerusalem to destroy it. Uh, Vespasian, uh, shortly before he becomes the emperor, he's just an important general at the time. Yeah, yeah. So he has been sent there to basically finally, I mean, the, the Jewish sort of rebellion against Rome is sort of historic, goes all the way back, even prefigured with the Maccabean revolts and, uh, you know, the cleansing and the fighting and the zealot movements. Um, but at this time, 70 AD, we know historically Rome surrounds Jerusalem and finally... Yeah, Vespasian was slow and methodical uh, four or five years before he goes into the northern Galilee, mm. starts, uh, starts bringing troops in. Remember, they had the capital in Tiberias, and the Roman soldiers begin to flow in. The army is there. They're taking from the north, heading southward toward Jerusalem. They're taking town after town, area after area. Uh, Josephus is captured during that time in mm. the caves, uh, hiding, and, uh, and they're moving, and then uh, they get uh, kind of well into the project, and Vespasian's called back to Rome, which was common. Uh, the, the Roman Senate would call, uh, call the generals back to Rome, and they, they made him emperor. <laughs> mm. And so he was now the Caesar. And uh, so Titus, his son, is sent in his place, uh, he tells them, go and finish this job, and finish the job is to do away with this, this people who, who uh, are so difficult to govern, have caused so many problems, are so volatile, go and, and, and tear that temple down. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, Titus comes in and surrounds and, and sets up a siege around Jerusalem, and over time uh, uh, starves out uh, everyone. And you know, not to get horrible on your podcast, but uh, the slow, methodical way in which the Roman army moved south caused people to run to the temple. They ran to Jerusalem thinking the Roman army is coming and God's going to fight the Romans and the only safe place is going to be the temple. Because the temple is God. God is the temple. If he's going to defend himself, he's going to defend his people from that place. Yes. And the only way, ostensibly, the only way they would have known that's not true is if they had heard, listened to, and abided by what Jesus says right here. Yes, and this is not easy for them right. to get, even get a handle on this. But, uh, but what he's trying to do is prepare for life after the temple and let them get out. Let them not be caught thinking that this is God's, God's doing. And keep in mind also that 
uh, after Jesus is taken up into heaven, they're in the temple area. There, there are there is persecution. They're sent out. Uh, the Acts, you know, his own that. disciples, the early Christians, gathering in the temple, Solomon's porch, Solomon's porch, yes. worshiping regularly in the mix of things. Haven't separated themselves in yeah. any obvious way, except when they're forced out in certain areas, but. And they're, and they're persecuted, they're run out, but, but there's still a presence there. They right. still meet there. Right. There's still a church in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, many things happening there that, uh, that, that will be difficult for them to just say, well, well God's not going to defend us in this. This isn't God's defense here. So the disciples themselves are going to have to remember that Jesus is saying, and because he does explicitly say, I don't know, it's okay if I jump there to verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out, not run to it, but out of it. And those out in the country should not return to the city, which is exactly your point. You're saying that slowly people were running from the country toward the city, thinking that was their best hope for God to protect them. And Jesus yes. is saying the exact opposite. He's saying you need yes. to get out. It's a terrible time to be running toward the city. You should be running the opposite yeah. direction. Yeah, and, and, and that's good because he's answering the, the second question first. What will be the sign? Right. Uh, what, what the sign is is, is that uh, the armies are surrounding and God's not going to defend it. He's going to abandon it because this is the time of God's vengeance, the days of vengeance and the prophetic words of Scripture being fulfilled. So the army surrounding is the sign this is going to happen. And that's God's judgment on that system and on that... The abandonment of the temple. Okay. And, it's, it, and it's, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to say God abandoned the temple. Mm. He abandoned the temple system. It, it denied him. It refused to establish him as the cornerstone, and so God tore it down. Mm. Maybe we can put uh, a bookmark at that point right there, and then uh, come back and finish uh, laying out this kind of framework, we'll kind of go back over some of the features, and, uh, and take care of this maybe in a, in a second episode. John, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, really, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe, and your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.